Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon. Brian Simmons. Brian hand-delivered the orders of Axel Oxenstierna to Leonard Torstensen, commanding the Swedish army in Germany. These orders were nothing less than to turn his army around and attack Denmark. Good on you, Brian. This, of course, is all a lie. But if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. But for now, enjoy the latest episode of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 72 of the Thirty Years' War. So last time, the changing of the guard in France and Spain came under our microscope, as Richelieu, Louis XIII, and Olivares all passed on to be replaced by new men and monarchs by mid-1643. In the midst of this change, France succeeded at Roqua, only to be beaten back at Tutlingen later in the year, placing her army along the Rhine back where it had started in 1638. These setbacks were grave, but there was better news on the horizon. Imperial forces continued to swirl around Germany, awaiting the right moment to combat the increasing power and confidence of Torstensen's Swedish army. To the south, Bavaria awaited a French invasion along the Rhine, and in the northwest, the Hessians squared off with the forces under Melchior von Hatzfeld around Westphalia and Cologne. Significantly a short distance from that front, the peace conference was beginning at Osnabrück and Münster, or at least it had been meant to begin by May 1643, because ironically, and not for the first time, the proper opening of the conference was delayed thanks to the circumstances of the war. This delay was to continue, and not just because Cardinal Mazarin, Richelieu's replacement, wished to bring French arms to bear after Roquois, and a task he ultimately failed in, as we know, but also because Chancellor Oxenstierna had issued new, secret orders to his commander in mid-1643. Torstensen was tasked with returning to Sweden and waging a new war against Denmark. It was the first time the two rivals had come to blows in 30 years and in that war, Denmark had trounced its Swedish neighbour. Oxenstierna believed this occasion would be different, and he believed he possessed more than enough reasons to open this second front. 
the sheer shock and surprise this caused was palpable, especially since the Danes were meant to be a key mediating power at Westphalia, as far as they thought anyway. As the Danish left their mediation chairs behind, they turned to face an old enemy, and the Emperor began to scheme like never before. Perhaps this was the break the Habsburg cause needed, perhaps Sweden had fatally overstepped, perhaps, but all would become clearer during the Torstensen War, as it became known. It is to this conflict we turn our attention to in this episode, as we place it in its military and political context. Before we start that episode though, thanks so much for your feedback on that episode I released last week about national honour and Victorian diplomacy. I really appreciate your interest and in some cases your excitement, you weirdos, because that was the first time I properly shared my PhD research and I was feeling a bit iffy about giving so many references and such detailed analysis on something like a podcast because I didn't know how it would translate, but by all accounts, you did enjoy it. And if you didn't enjoy it, I'm sure you deleted the episode anyway and continued on with your life. But either way, if it missed your notice, yes, there's a near three-hour episode just waiting in the wings for you if you feel like delving into the question of national honour and British foreign policy. Enough of that, though. Without any further ado, I will now take you all to 1643. On the 5th of June, 1643, Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna wrote a letter to Leonard Torstensen, his commander in Germany, with a stark instruction. The Swedish commander must return to Sweden and prepare for a war against Denmark and he should ensure that Swedish interests in Germany were secure before he did so. Torstensen did not receive this letter until early October, but when he did, he may well have wished he had never read it at all. After all, Torstensen could claim, Sweden was finally making some genuine progress against its imperial enemies, and in the last year, Torstensen had carved out a base for himself in Silesia and Moravia, placing him in the Habsburg's backyard. Facing him was Matthias Gallus, no doubt a competent soldier leading capable officers, but plagued in his own case by rampant alcoholism, which left him blind drunk on several occasions and his army rudderless. Considering the circumstances, the moment seemed ideal to maintain the pressure and plot new initiatives in the campaigning season of 1644. Here, though, was the Chancellor telling Torstensen that there was to be a change of plan. Whatever hesitation or irritation Torstensen may have exuded, these sentiments didn't prevent him from obeying the veteran Chancellor. On the 13th of November 1643, Torstensen began his march from Upper Silesia across Brandenburg. The first stage of the war against Denmark had been set in motion. One might have asked why Oxenstierna believed that this conflict with Denmark was necessary in the first place. Certainly, a panicked King Christian IV of Denmark would have wondered this when he learned that the Jutland Peninsula had been totally overrun for only the second time in his reign by January 1644. In fact, though, while Oxenstierna's decision might seem like a bolt from the blue, the act had been in the pipeline for some time. In many respects, this was a continuation of the war which had come to an end in 1613. That conflict with Denmark had been inherited by Gustavus Adolphus from his father, and ending it cost Sweden a million thalers, not to mention possession of Gothenburg, the island of Osel in the Baltic, and recognition of Danish supremacy 
in the Baltic Sea. Thirty years later, Oxenstierna had not forgotten that defeat, but he had watched, also, as Denmark suffered a catastrophe of her own, with Wallenstein, remember him, surging up the Jutland Peninsula in the late 1620s. The emergency which followed prompted Gustavus to move closer to his Danish foe, but this had not led to more amicable relations between the Scandinavian rivals, especially when Gustavus defied all expectations and established a German bridgehead for Sweden. But Christian of Denmark had not sat still either. By 1631 he had settled his debts from the war with the emperor and moved closer to the Habsburgs, confirming his son's possessions of the bishoprics of Bremen and Verden, just south of the Danish border. Thereafter, Christian tried to pose as mediator, intervening repeatedly as the Treaty of Hamburg was drawn up and eventually signed in late 1641. The Treaty of Hamburg stipulated the form which the Westphalian negotiations were to take, and Christian moved 10,000 men onto the border to show that he was serious. Indeed, his army had been allowed to grow even under the restrictions of the Danish Royal Council. By 1642, Christian could boast an army of more than 22,000 militia, buoyed by a professional army of 11,000 men, an alliance with the neighbouring Duke of Holstein, and a navy composed of 35 heavy warships. This was a powerful force, and critically, it could make a real difference if it was thrown into the balance against Sweden at a critical time. But even had he wanted to, Christian learned that after he had fired his best shot against the emperor in the 1620s, a great deal of his freedom had been stripped away. He was virtually forbidden from engaging in foreign wars without the prior approval of the Danish Royal Council, and it was this restriction that compelled the imperial delegate to retire from Denmark in disgust by late 1641, having worked up to that point to bring Denmark into the war against Sweden and on the Emperor's side. Thus, Christian's army could only serve a defensive purpose, and by that logic, it was of no direct threat to Sweden. To Oxenstierna, though, Denmark's military threat was less potent than the real impact her king could make on the peace negotiations as a mediator. For that reason above all, the Swedish Chancellor believed that Denmark had to be stopped. And if Oxenstierna was suspicious about the Danish king's intentions to mediate at Westphalia, he had good reason. Contrary to what he may have told his contemporaries, King Christian was not seeking to mediate out of the goodness of his heart. It was within his interest to intervene in the peace negotiations, because it granted him the chance to block Swedish possession of Pomerania. Sweden's expansion into Pomerania would grant her unrivaled control over the Baltic coast, and would guarantee her a permanent seat in German affairs. But that was not all. Christian had been diplomatically active, sending embassies to Madrid, Warsaw, Moscow and Paris, seeking support for his stance and promising Danish rewards. Keeping these manoeuvres secret was impossible, but what Christian had managed to keep secret was just how miserably all of these initiatives had failed. Denmark was no closer to obtaining a foreign alliance in 1643 than it had been in 1635, when Sweden's position was most desperate. The Emperor, who we may view as Christian's most natural ally considering the strategic circumstances, had been prevented from bringing Denmark into the war by Christian's royal council, but the Danish king had additional problems with cozying up to the Habsburg bloc. Christian was one of many figures who wanted the Palatinate restored to its pre-war status, 
He wanted control over several port tolls confirmed, and he wanted amnesty for Protestant German powers who might side with him against Sweden. And further problems had abounded with the Polish and Russian contacts. King Vladislav of Poland wanted Pomerania for himself, and the proposed marriage contract with Tsar Michael's daughter fell apart over disagreements regarding the religion of the ceremony and the marriage itself. Christian kept these failures secret, but he had initiated them loudly, and the presence of his mediators at Westphalia was a further source of resentment and suspicion at Stockholm. These slights were added to a growing tally, but Oxenstierna could add a few more. The sound, that passage which connected the Baltic to the North Sea, was monopolised by Denmark thanks to the accidents of geography. But Christian's aggressive squeezing of the tolls from the sound had been absolutely no accident. The tolls themselves were not punishingly high, but the methods which Danish officers used generally were, and Christian continued to rankle Swedish opinion by claiming sovereignty over all of the sound. The lucrative waterway was a part of his dominion as much as the Jutland Peninsula and the Danish islands of Funen and Zealand, Christian claimed, and he alone was entitled to make use of it as he pleased. By early 1643, these slights and threats to Swedish interests had accumulated sufficiently to persuade the Swedish Reichstag that the time had come to urge the Chancellor to press for war with Denmark. Denmark's disingenuous mediation, her contacts with Sweden's rivals, her growing power and her offensive pursuance of the King's sound entitlements were believed to be sufficient grounds for war. To this was added a shot which Christian had fired across the bow of the Swedish royal family. Maria Eleonora of Brandenburg, the widow of Gustavus Adolphus, had become a source of some embarrassment and difficulty for the Swedish Chancellor and the Regency government by 1640, when one of her letters was intercepted and indicated a desire to improve relations with Denmark. Eleonora was effectively imprisoned. Her captors evidently did not expect a frail and bothersome widow to be capable of escape from such a fortress, but escape she did in late July 1640, incredibly enough, and she made her way to Denmark, where Christian IV was only too happy to house her, at least for a time. Scurrilous rumours even did the rounds that Eleonora was in love with the 64-year-old Danish king. One can imagine the scandal and sense of shame that the event ingrained in Sweden, as King Christian could claim to have gotten one over on his rival Gustavus, even in death. Eleonora's Danish holiday lasted little more than a couple of years before she moved home to Brandenburg, and then back to Stockholm by 1648. But the whole episode had aroused even more hostility towards Christian, and the slight was included in the memorandum, which announced Sweden's declaration of war in late January 1644, when, by the way, the conflict was already a month old. Christian's decision to provide a Danish vessel for Eleonora's escape in the midsummer of 1640 was felt to be particularly insulting, and it certainly did Christian no favours in the long run. With their justification for war with Denmark in hand, the true dilemma for Oxenstierna and the Swedish magnates was the fact that, oh yeah, Sweden was already heavily involved with a war in Germany. Could she manage this war on two fronts? Certainly not if new campaigns were to be launched simultaneously. Some Swedish councillors wanted to establish alliances against Denmark, perhaps out of the pool of German princes that lived south of the Danish border. 
Others, led by Oxenstierna, emphasised the power of the surprise attack. And it certainly was a surprise. As Oxenstierna had added Christian's slights to the ledger, the Danish king carried on oblivious to the damage and resentment he had caused. The customary meeting of the Danish and Swedish monarchs in some border town was what Christian would have expected if war was to be proclaimed. But by the summer of 1643, Oxenstierna had planned to do away with such niceties and traditions. And if you remember the date that Torstensen began his march in November 1643, you'll probably be able to predict that the surprise was doubled thanks to Oxenstierna's decision to campaign in wintertime. This decision was taken due to the logistical necessity as much as out of the desire to maintain the element of surprise. While he was fighting Denmark in the wintertime, the war in Germany would effectively be on hold, as Gallus's men lay in winter quarters, and the Danes would in no sense expect an invasion of their lands during that season, even if they had known that a Swedish force led by Torstensson was on the way. With these bases prepared, it still could not be denied that Oxenstierna and Torstensson were taking an immense risk. What would happen in the spring of 1644, when Christian realised what was happening and called on Emperor Ferdinand III to aid him? Surely Matthias Gallus would have an easy time of it, and would capitalise upon Sweden's distraction by undoing all of Torstensson's gains of the last two years. Oxenstierna hoped it wouldn't come to that, that Torstensson's defences would hold, and that Denmark could be crippled in record time before the weight of an imperial counterattack would tell. On the 22nd of December, 1643, to the utter surprise of Christian and his subjects, Torstensson crossed the border into Denmark and began to advance up the Jutland Peninsula. Torstensson's war had begun. We're going to continue with the story of Torstensson's war in just a bit, history friend, but before I do that, you should be aware, if you're not already, that I've recently started a new series for patrons called Diplomacy Britain vs. America, which covers Anglo-American relations in the very understudied and underrepresented years of 1838 to 1846. Now, we know there was no war during that time, but I would argue sometimes the diplomacy that skirts neatly around war and doesn't quite go all the way over the abyss can in many ways be more interesting than the obvious eruption of hostilities. Maybe you disagree, but if you would like to have a little peek under the hood and see what it's all about, make sure and check out the first episode which we've released for all listeners. You should know episode 3 just came out, wherein we talk about the fate of Alexander MacLeod, a British citizen who was imprisoned in a New York jail because New Yorkers blamed him for burning down one of their private citizens' ships called the Caroline. The Caroline controversy, the MacLeod controversy, debates over the fate and borders of Oregon and Maine and so many other issues besides are all to play for. So if this period of history would be interesting to you, make sure you check out Diplomacy Britain vs. America. As usual, of course, click on the link in the description below or search for Patreon when diplomacy fails or just search my name. It's a bit of a weird one. Until the 10th of February, you can get an annual Patreon membership with 16% off, and I'm doing this to raise money for the last round of fees. Of course, I really appreciate your support so far, and now we're in the final stretch, and I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of excited to not have any more of these giant bills. If I never have to say the word fees again, it'll be too soon. 
You can of course still pay monthly though if that's more your jam, it is completely up to you. And if I haven't mentioned this before, getting these Patreon episodes to your favourite podcatcher is super easy. I managed to do it in minutes myself and I'm far from a tech whiz and I have of course put up all these different guides to show you the way to do it. So that's Diplomacy, Britain versus America. I hope you'll check it out. But otherwise, thanks so much for listening in and hey, thanks for not skipping this ad. You're the best. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When Torstenson had informed his army of 16,000 men where they were headed, he was faced with several protests. Many of these men were Germans, and claimed they hadn't signed up to fight outside the empire in Swedish service. This was a private war between Scandinavian powers, and many said they wanted no part in it. Torstensson tactfully appeased them by reminding them of an important fact. The Jutland Peninsula had been untouched since 1629, and was therefore likely to produce much healthier returns from looting than the aching lands they had been marching across since the mid-1630s. By crossing into Holstein on the 22nd of December 1643, Torstensen bullied its duke into a neutrality, which left Christian further isolated. It must have been an anxious Christmas season for the Danish king, made worse by the lack of clarity for the first month. Torstensen had crossed into Danish lands as though he was a neutral party seeking quarters for his men, and the act had been so unexpected that the Swedish commander wasn't greeted by a Danish army, but a Danish trumpeter, who asked Torstensen to explain himself. Torstensen delayed his answer for another month. And as we said, the formal declaration of war wasn't sent out until the 28th of January 1644, by which time Torstensen had more than capitalised on the rank confusion of his foe. The aggression and speed of the invader was eerily reminiscent of Wallenstein's advance up the peninsula, and like they had done 15 years before, those Danes that could escape moved quickly either to the Danish islands or nearby German lands. Christian's army resided largely in those bishoprics maintained by his sons, and it would take a while to rally the 10,000 men there to defend the Danish homeland. Having outmaneuvered his foe, Torstensen effectively had the run of the peninsula and surged through it with amazing speed, surprising even Oxenstierna, who contemplated, with these incredible results, 
conquering Denmark outright. As Danish defences were reeling, Oxenstierna revealed his trump card, and an army of 10,000 conscripts invaded the Danish province of Scania in modern-day southern Sweden. This army was under the command of Gustav Horn, a veteran of the battles of Breitenfeld and Nordlingen, and a prisoner of the Imperials until his release in 1642. The move was a bold one, and if successful, it would grant Sweden unfettered access to the Baltic by bypassing the Sound entirely. Danish possession of this once Swedish land had been instrumental in insulating the Sound and protecting it from Swedish attack, but Horn's invasion in that direction in February 1644 demonstrated Oxenstierna wasn't fighting just to give Christian a bloody nose, but to overturn the very balance of power within the Baltic. How could the aged Danish king respond to these successive attacks on his realm? After having left his kingdom in such a disadvantageous position, Christian sought redemption on the battlefield. The initial acts of the war had been overwhelming and impressive, but by the time Gustav Horn's invasion stalled in the face of the resistance posed by the hastily rallied 8,000 Scanian militia, Oxenstierna may have begun to worry. The problem was logistical as much as geographic. Torsonson commanded the experienced veterans of the war, but he could do little now that the Jutland Peninsula was occupied. With the weather unseasonably warm, the crossings in between the Danish islands of Funen and Zealand had not frozen, and until naval supremacy could be brought to bear, Copenhagen couldn't be threatened. The mercies of geography had come to Christian's rescue, just as they had in the late 1620s, when a frustrated Wallenstein was able to go no further without a navy. The main front having stagnated, Gustav Horn was learning that his conscripts were more trouble than they were worth. They seemed more interested in plunder than in victory, and desertion also plagued his force. Horn was informed that, far from buckling under the invasion in Scania, counter-attacks across the border into Swedish territory had been made by the Danes, and Oxenstierna had not accounted for this. Although he had prepared some ulterior plans. In the months before the invasion, the Swedish Chancellor had instructed Sweden's agent in the Netherlands to enlist a fleet of Dutch ships. The Dutch had also felt slighted by Danish monopolies over the Sound and by Christian's heavy-handed exactions. As the masters of the Baltic entrepot trade, they couldn't allow their mercantile interests to be so undermined. They thus proved receptive to Swedish requests for ships, but if Oxenstierna had hoped for the Dutch navy to rescue his lagging campaign, he was to be disappointed. At Gothenburg, Sweden's old base on the Baltic Sea, wedged in between Norway and Scania, and sacked by Christian in 1612, a Danish fleet under King Christian IV himself set sail. The Swedish fleet and their smaller Dutch auxiliaries were defeated in July, only for Carl Gustav Wrangel, a new commander of some renown, to lead the Swedish navy to safety. Later in the month, in the inconclusive battle of Kalberger Heide off the coast of Holstein, King Christian got up close and personal with the battle as a shell exploded on the deck of his ship, knocking him down and inflicting a reported 23 wounds on the aged king. To the surprise of everyone, probably including himself, King Christian bounced back up to his feet, proclaiming that God has left me life and strength enough to fight for my people so long as each will do his duty. It was only then that onlookers observed that the king's right eye was missing. 
This scene was immortalised by the Danish painter Wilhelm Nikolai Marstrand, who depicted the aged king standing in the centre of the scene on his flagship Trinity, with his right hand placed firmly on a sabre, which is stuck in the ground, and his left hand raised. A bandage covers the king's right eye, and his entourage are plainly impressed as they take the time to raise their hats to the king and his bravery. The scene is obviously imagined and made much more glamorous than the awful conditions of battle would have allowed, but still, it provides a window into one of the many incredible moments which the Thirty Years' War produced. Notwithstanding the heroism and bravery of the Danish king, his stand did not represent the turning of the tide against Sweden, though the Danish home islands were saved from attack. It was in October 1644, at the Battle of Fomarn, that Sweden's navy surprised and decisively defeated its Danish counterpart. Fomarn had been a great relief to Oxenstierna, because it granted Sweden the naval supremacy it needed, but this optimism was short-lived, as it transpired the Danish fleet remained a force to be reckoned with, and the route to Copenhagen was not clear. In addition to these problems, by autumn 1644, the Danish king was no longer fighting alone. Emperor Ferdinand, as many Swedish councillors had feared, sent 18,000 men Sweden's way to capitalise on the distraction and rescue a potential Habsburg ally. Rather than besieging Copenhagen or some other ambitious scheme, Oxenstierna would have to move his pieces across the board and get Torstensen's men to Pomerania or Mecklenburg, where they could be used to block the arrival of Matthias Gallus. The victory at Fomarn had come just as Oxenstierna's strategy seemed to be falling apart. Swedish forces under Gustav Horn had been evicted from Scania. Norwegian counterattacks had poured across the border into the middle of Sweden, and Torstensen's army was in danger of being cut off altogether in the Jutland Peninsula. All eyes now moved to what Matthias Gallus would do, and whether he could cut Sweden off or launch some manoeuvre which would destroy Sweden's options. A more capable commander might have done so, but unfortunately for King Christian, and fortunately for the Swedish Chancellor, Matthias Gallus was no longer a capable commander. Gallus happened to be blind drunk at the very moment when a tactician's mind was needed. His folly enabled Torstensen to move around him and unite with the Hessians and his subordinate, Konigsmark, who provided another 5,000 men. Now outnumbered, Matthias Gallus tried to retreat back across the River Elbe from the way he had come. Torstensen's soldiers pursued them all the way until Gallus's army had collapsed with his reputation. By the time he reached the Saxon town of Wittenberg, far to the southeast, in December 1644, Gallus's army, which had originally contained 18,000 men, had been whittled down to just 3,000. Matthias Gallus obtained the unflattering epithet Army Wrecker from his own soldiers, and he was relieved of command in late January 1645. This is all to say that if a more capable commander had been at the helm of imperial soldiers, Oxenstierna's master plan could have landed Sweden in ruin. With Gallus's exit and no external threat to his position, Torstensen recouped his gains from the previous year and hit at Christian right where it hurt him the most, his son's inheritance, in the bishoprics of Verden and Bremen, which the emperor had guaranteed to him in the Peace of Prague. The archbishoprics were all occupied by the spring of 1645. Holstein was detached from Denmark, and it was reported that Danish officials were no longer in a position to enforce the sound tolls. 
The middle portion of the story of Torstensen's war had been touch and go, but Oxenstierna had persevered, and the returns from a short, sharp war with Denmark that he had envisioned had been pulled from the wounded and one-eyed Christian's hands. Sweden had made its point, with devastating consequences for the balance of power in the Baltic, and now it was time to make peace. The peace negotiations between Sweden and Denmark were something of a curious, if necessary, distraction from what was meant to have been the main peace negotiations at Westphalia. Predictably, it was impossible to consider a peace for the Thirty Years' War when one of its major combatants was invested elsewhere. The French and the Dutch, as Sweden's allies in the struggle, had both reacted to the war differently. Mazarin had watched with alarm and irritation, as it seemed Sweden was wasting French money, lest we forget, on a harebrained scheme which very nearly backfired. The secret war against Denmark also left French forces alone to face the might of the Emperor and his German allies. Yet this irritation and apprehension would not last, especially since Mazarin wished to play a role in the peace which would follow. The Dutch perspective was more straightforward, and was aimed at undercutting the Danish sound tolls, which had risen during the 1630s to Dutch irritation. After sailing through the sound in July 1645, paying no tolls, it seemed apparent that this Dutch aim, at least, had been achieved. Neither France nor the Dutch wanted to see Sweden replace Denmark in the Baltic, instead they wanted to leave the region divided, though with Sweden the clear benefactor. It was a delicate balance to maintain, but it essentially meant the protection of Danish independence, just about. The Peace of Bromsbro was facilitated by the Franco-Dutch mediators, and it was signed in mid-August 1645. It was, of course, an unmitigated disaster for Christian, and confirmed his worst fears about the extent to which the Baltic balance of power had shifted against him. As Michael Brengsbo wrote, The Danish position, as the leading power in the Baltic region, and a middle-sized European power, had come to an end. From then on, Denmark was unable to secure her own independence without the support of others. It's difficult to contest this claim. In the Scandinavian theatre, Denmark lost the Baltic islands of Gotland on Ossel. She ceded the province of Halland on Sweden's southwestern coast, which granted Sweden a secure route to the North Sea in the process, and a slice of Norway was handed over, fattening the middle part of Sweden's land border with Norway and providing for extra security. It was in Germany that Christian was most seriously stung, though, as his son's archbishoprics were seized from him and granted to Sweden. On top of all of this, Christian promised to abandon his earlier commitment to serve as mediator, The aged Danish king, notwithstanding his heroic war wounds, withdrew from European affairs, and he died just before the Peace of Westphalia could be reached in early 1648. Torstensen's war, as it would come to be known, was in some respects a close-run thing, but it had proved in the end a worthwhile distraction from the war in Germany and a lucrative venture for the Swedish Chancellor. Prestige and income had been greatly inflated by the short conflict, while all efforts on the Emperor's side to arrange a lasting alliance between Denmark and Vienna had failed, tripping up, interestingly, on the same issue which had delayed the conclusion of a proper Franco-Swedish alliance for so long, the question of making peace. 
Emperor Ferdinand wanted Christian to pledge that he would remain in the war until the Emperor made peace, but the desperate, war-weary, one-eyed Danish king was keen to reach peace by this point at any price. By the time peace was reached, Christian had a royal counterpart in Stockholm who was the opposite to him in virtually every sense, and not merely because she was Sweden's solitary queen. Queen Christina came of age in November 1644, and at that point wasted no time receiving communications from Oxenstierna and advising where possible. She took care of the kingdom from February 1645, while Oxenstierna moved off to negotiate the peace with Denmark in person, and during that time, Christina flexed her royal muscles freely, having been under the control of a regency for 13 years. Just as Queen Christina's remarkable career was beginning, Sweden's war with its old foe was coming to an end. Just, indeed, as the full consequences of her father's work echoed in Copenhagen, this martial queen, every bit her father's daughter, came into her majority. After such a triumphant display of power, Oxenstierna and Queen Christina were now more prepared than ever to bring the war in Germany to its conclusion. The emperor had missed his chance to avenge himself upon the distracted Swedes, and he was rapidly running out of chances himself. We'll, of course, look at Emperor Ferdinand's plight in the next episode, but until then, history friends and patrons, thanks so much for listening. It's been a wild last few weeks. I'm currently knee-deep in Schleswig-Holstein, as it's the latest chapter I have to look at, so yeah, it's kind of funny seeing how Holstein and Denmark were associated even back here. But you've heard enough of PhD stuff to last you a lifetime, I'm sure. I can't thank you enough for your support and for listening here and spending the last half hour with me. It has been my pleasure, you might even say my honour, but for now, I will take my leave. My name is Zach, nearly Dr. Zach, and you have been listening to episode 72 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.